0: Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Welcome to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Here's what's coming up on the show. We'll be giving you my take on political policing, wearing rainbow hats on patrol, officers working from home and the Met spending nearly half a million probing so-called party gates. When will our excellent officers be allowed to get on with what they're good at, tackling genuine crime. The Football Association, police and multiple football clubs are now cooperating for the final set of fixtures this weekend to battle the recent rise in pitch invasions. Sheffield United player Billy Sharp was head by a rival fan and Merseyside police, are investigating Crystal Palace manager Patrick Vieira after his scuffle with an Everton pitch invader caught on camera. So how do we actually tackle that, which could ultimately end up being quite dangerous indeed? Now, a huge majority of us would be happy to see minority ethnic Prime Minister with a poll showing 84% are in favour. Wouldn't be bothered, folks. I think this is great news to see and hopefully we can reach 100% soon because ultimately, who? cares that's what we're talking about for the next hour i'd love to know your thoughts though as ever on our police force folks how do you feel about seeing an officer wearing a rainbow colored helmet you can tweet me at gbnews or you can email me on gbviews at gbnews.uk watch us online on youtube and don't forget about facebook loads of brilliant content on our gb news page cheers very much Now, on that topic of policing, it was one of the most striking and infuriating images of the week. Police superintendent, James Sutherland, patrolling around his patch of Cambridgeshire, wearing a garish rainbow helmet in the name of International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia. This, folks, it got me thinking. I wonder when the cops will have a national day of actually investigating crime instead of virtue signaling for the internet day. One to think about. The image seemed to sum up a couple of bad weeks for British cops, a week in which they have pulled in every direction by fashionable politics of the day and away from what I think they're actually good at, which is tackling real crime. Numerous forces have rolled out trendy so-called modern workplace policies. The Telegraph reported yesterday, allowing cops to investigate rapes and murders at home. I mean, really? We also learned that promising not to investigate historic lockdown breaches, the Met have spent a whopping £460,000 probing Partygate. Meanwhile, a lady who nudged an Extinction Rebellion protester who was laying in front of her car preventing her from getting a child to school criticised the police for double standards after she received a fine and a driving ban. I've no doubt that they were pretty soft on what happened to the Extinction Rebellion protester that was blocking the road, though. She said it's the police that have pushed this. They're really going for this. And she's a working mum, Sherilyn Speed. She added that she thinks it's double standards and that drivers who were delayed by the protests all called the police and they didn't come. I think she's got a point here, right? Instead of doing the work of ego extremists of Black Lives Matter or the LGBT lobby, a police officer should be able to do the job of a police officer. Novel idea, I know. How many of us have been utterly perplexed by the sight of these clown-like patrol cars embellished in the colours of the rainbow to raise awareness for the LGBT community that purport to give confidence to our LGBT plus community, whatever that is, and other underrepresented Groups, Or we've seen cops dancing with Extinction Rebellion as they block roads, or kneeling even with BLM lockdown breaches. I tell you what, I tell you what would give confidence to every taxpayer in Britain. The police being able to do their jobs in a police station, not at home, serving all of the British public, be that gay, straight, black, white, trans, whatever... BLM, Extinction Rebellion, and members of the LGBTQ plus clad, rainbow clad, alphabet soup, whatever they call themselves these days, not at their own houses at risk of burglary, right? Investigate genuine crime. Do these people not own cars? Do they not hold mobile phones? If so, I'm pretty sure that just like everybody else, They wish the police were able to investigate actual crimes, like robberies and burglaries and all of these other important things. Because, folks, Home Office data released last month shows us that a tiny 4.2% of theft offences and 6.6% of robberies resulted in a charge. I've heard time and again that the police say there's nothing we can do. Nothing to see here, folks. In fact, a record low of just 5.8% of crimes are ultimately getting solved. But don't worry folks, right? At least the police are decorating their helmets and writing lovely Twitter-friendly messages on their mortars, while some wrongin' is picnicking the stuff that you worked hard to buy yourself. And look, I'm a big supporter of the Bobbies on the Beat. They work hard, they're paid too little, and sometimes they're asked to do too much with precious little in the way of protection. But I'm afraid that this focus on minority groups tackling offensive speech online and recording these non-crime hate incidents that go hand in hand with adopting the rainbow in everyday policing, they all ultimately end up transforming policing into an office job, even folks into a working from home job. Now, I'm one of those with a non-crime hate incident against my name for causing offence Online, Some police officer, instead of investigating an actual crime, will have been left recording my non-crime for offending somebody on Twitter. If you ask me, it is utterly cartoon. It has taken the Michael out of the taxpayer. But maybe, just maybe, the upper echelons of our police force are starting to get the message. Her Majesty's new Chief Inspector of Constabulary has said last week that our cops are not the thought police. His words, not mine. And they should actually focus on dealing with actual offences and keeping the public safe. Again, his words, not mine. Andy Cook told the Times, we follow legislation and we follow the law. Simple as that. Policing is busy enough dealing with the serious offences that are going on. Busy enough trying to keep people safe. Hear, hear, Andy. Music to my ears, I tell you. But actions speak louder than words. It's time for real change in British policing. The police ought to be told that identity politics isn't for them. Why, or oh, why, would any hardened criminal take British policing seriously when their priorities are to paint anything they can in rainbow colours? What's next? Handcuffs with the trans flag? We don't allow the armed forces to ramble about the world, draped in rainbow colours like an armed to the teeth clown. Why should our police force be any different? It's an embarrassment. Let's get our bobbies on the beat, back on our streets, off of our tweets, and delete the police's politicised retreat. Now, more on that, folks. Cambridgeshire police were criticised after sharing pictures of Superintendent James Sutherland wearing the brightly coloured helmet while patrolling Cambridge this week. On Monday, they said, today is the international day against homophobia, transphobia and biphobia, and Superintendent James Sutherland was pictured wearing that rainbow helmet on patrol around Cambridge. But I, as I argued at the top of the show there, shouldn't our police be apolitical? Well, joining me in the studio to discuss this is former Detective Chief Superintendent at the Metropolitan Police, Kevin Hurley. Kevin, thank you very much for your company. You. Can I ask you, Kevin, did you agree with my, what I said there at the start of the show?
1: I absolutely thought you were talking for what most of the public think and most of the police officers think. Frankly, the police has embraced wokeism far too much and it pervades everything. I've just come from lunch with, actually, with a serving... Uh, detective on a specialist um, squad who tells me that he's scared to death of opening his mouth and saying the wrong word in the office in case he offends someone. Mm. And we see that replicated uh, right across the piece and everything we see in policing. That helmet is an absolute classic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: First off, let me make the point. So everybody is entitled to their own position on whether or not they are uh, LGBT plus or whatever. Let everybody be whatever they want. Mm-hmm. However, As you say, the role of the police is to be apolitical. So I'll just stay with the rainbow motifs at the moment. Whilst it's fine in one way for police to say, yes, we're supportive of the LGBT community, if you're wearing a particular logo that another group finds offensive against their religious beliefs, what you're actually doing for that other group is offending them. Yeah. And you're showing, if you like, preference the other way. So my view on this, and it always has been, because I've always been a stickler for standards of turnout, which have got steadily worse in the police, that police officers should not wear any motif, any badge whatsoever, other than at Poppy Day at the end of uh, early November. But some, especially on the left, might
0: argue, mightn't they, that the poppy is also a political
1: act? Well, they may do, but the poppy is standard, if you like... Commonwealth culture. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's not British. Commonwealth culture, and it's a recognition of all the people who gave their lives serving the Queen Mm -hmm. abroad. That's actually what they did, and because we are, in fact, a sovereign country where the Queen is the head of state, that's what the symbol is, people who gave their lives in the ultimate sacrifice. So, um, it's not really a political statement, because that's what it's about, But I think the the other issues are, there are, for example, police officers will wear Union Jacks with a thin blue line on their uniform. Mm -hmm. I'm opposed to that, and that will upset thousands of police officers because what they're doing is they're making a political statement that we are embattled and beleaguered and some of our officers are getting, if you like, few and far between and some have died on duty. It's not the role of a police officer in any way to make a political statement with an emblem on that. Far better... They get on with doing their job, which is serving the public, uh, and of course, as you put it, catching wrong-uns. How do you think this
0: has happened then? Because it seems to me, and it strikes, we get emails all the time at GB News, about the capture of many of our public institutions by this form of wackery and walkery, right, where, as you say, right, we are a country that has enshrined in law, a belief in equality and all the rest of it.
1: Hunky-dory, happy days. But that has to be removed, truly, from British policing. It's weak, pusillanimous, senior police leadership that's been going on for years and promotes in their own like. If you don't, if you, like, mind your P and Qs, you don't say whatever's the next politically correct thing to do in the police, you don't move on. So we then end up in a situation where you've got chief constables around the country, for example, will be wearing the rainbow motifs or they'll be wearing whatever badge is appropriate, whether it's support of breast cancer, care of police survivors. All of these are laudable causes and reasons why, if one's off duty and in plain clothes, you might want to show your support. But there is no place for an officer in uniform to be wearing that or, indeed, a detective who's on duty dealing with the public, but chief officers are the ones who set the tone. So we move on from that and we look at where are we in policing. It's it's going in a steady downward decline. As you rightly say, most of the police are, frankly, quietly brave, courageous people who care deeply, but their standards have been allowed to drop off, they're not being guided, they're not being shown. Let me give you an example, which you haven't quoted, where nobody really notices it. You'll remember the horrendous case uh, last year of the two police officers who were manning a cordon on two sisters who'd been murdered in a park, and they took it on themselves to leave this cordon, go in and take photographs, and then distribute it on a WhatsApp group. Mm -hmm. Everyone was rightly horrified Mm -hmm. because this was appalling, disgraceful, very offensive for the family. I have not heard a single person, particularly a senior police officer, picking up what that actually was all about, and the true impulse. The reason I say that is this. The Metropolitan Police solved that murder by recovering a small element of blood, and the DNA from that blood solved that murder. The job of those two officers was to protect that crime scene mm-hmm. from contamination mm-hmm. so that detectives could investigate it properly. They decided they will ignore their primary function, a complete lack of discipline for some fun photos. The role of the police is to prevent crime and detect offenders. Yeah. What has gone on where two reasonably experienced constables think it's appropriate to walk into a murder scene?
0: Mm-hmm. You know... Extraordinary. For me...
1: You know, the punishment internally that should be provided for that is difficult for me to articulate on t- TV because people would be shocked. But is that is that where you but think... But that's leadership. That's a failure exactly. of leadership. Exactly. That the ethos has been lost, that we are here to detect offences, catch offenders, prevent crime. And those two people, either poor training, poor leadership and supervision, and it's not just the sergeants and the constables... Yeah. ..a fish rots from the head. Well, exactly. And on that point, and briefly, if
0: you will, because we're running out of time, sadly, but if you consider, you know, the the state of British policing is, I would say, in a state of flux. Correct. We've got a Home Secretary that many people would consider as being tough on law and order, or at least that's the image that the Home Secretary absolutely wants to project. If we can't get these reforms through that the British people want to see which, as we've been discussing, is a focus on law and order instead of wackery and walkery, if Pretty Patel can't even manage to get these reforms to the culture of policing through, and the top cheeses maybe, then what
1: hope have we got? Is done. British police... You done. think it's done? The bottom line on it is that the leadership at the top needs to start with basics, which is clean your shoes press your trousers, stand up properly. Look, this morning, I've just been to the uh, rehearsal for Trooping the Colour, and as I walked along, I'd walking along with another um, serving officer, and we were just looking at the way officers were carrying themselves in public, standing in small groups, not communicating with the public, some sh- uniforms relatively unkempt. One lone female officer was smiling, saying, good morning, hello, how are you? Mm. Exactly what we want. Mm. But there were sergeants, inspectors, superintendents standing there... Letting that go on. If we've got to that stage where the leadership are not saying, wear your clothes properly, yeah. engage with the public, you are on show... Look, there's a point I'd make, this very quick, I know you're running out of time. I, I I train on this internationally, a concept called the strategic constable. The best way of imagining what a strategic constable is this. Police are given immense powers. They can yeah. arrest you, take you into custody... Oh, ..even shoot you. Um, but that power is at the lowest level, yeah. If one officer misuses that power in public in the days of where we are, it does strategic damage. Yeah, and the classic example is the death in Minneapolis of uh, of uh, Mr. Floyd, yeah, indeed. Went one officer the world. sent that round the world from New Zealand to Canada to Kenya, yeah. that whole ethos of Black Lives Matters came from that. But
0: I could talk to you about BLM and open up a whole other discussion, but we've got to leave it there, I'm afraid. But thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate your contribution. Now, folks... The sports section isn't relegated to the back of your newspaper if you check it today. It's been a controversial season in the Premier League. We've had a takeover, which has called into question the ethics of foreign takeovers altogether. There's been a stark rise in football hooliganism and more recently increases in pitch invasions, which has been condemned by the Football Association. We've got playoff finals, of course, and a relegation battle and title decider... Heading into the final day of the Premier League tomorrow. So I'm delighted to say that joining me to discuss all of that is the sports writer for the Sun, Justin Allen. Hiya, Justin. Now Justin, tell my viewers where you I are don't. today. I'm at Wembley Stadium today for Sunderland against
2: Wickham. So, Sunderland finally hoping to end four seasons in the third tier. But Wickham will have
0: something to say about that. <laughs> do you know what, Justin? I've got, I'm have got. i going to say something that's going to make me quite unpopular as a Newcastle fan. But I actually have a lot of sympathy for Sunderland. And I wish them well today. I really do. Do you reckon they're going to do it? Yeah. I mean, do, do you know something?
2: I've got this sneaky feeling they will. I mean, there's been a lot made of them not winning you know, playoff campaigns and have been promoted through a playoff. However, they did win the, uh, the EFL trophy ending their Wembley hoodoo. So I think now they've got that out of the way, that jinx has gone. There's another jinx to be got rid of today. So on paper, they should do it. As we know, football's never played
0: on paper and Wicked Wanderers, that's an incredible story in its own right. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about this rise in pitch invasions? Because it strikes me, and I don't mean to sound like a sort of alarmist here, but it strikes me that this could get really really dangerous right we saw at the crystal palace game how a pitch invasion can actually turn quite nasty they seem to be getting more aggressive just what's going on here and why are the upper echelons of football not taking this more seriously do you reckon Well, Darren, actually four matches I've been to now in actually the championship
2: where there's been pitch invasions. There was a pitch invasion at Fulham when they got promoted. There was a pitch invasion at Bournemouth when they got promoted. There was a pitch invasion when Huddersfield got to the playoff final the other night. Same with Nottingham Forest. We saw that scene where Billy Sharp, uh, the Sheffield United player, was physically attacked. Well, Mm. I don't understand. I'm all for uh, fans enjoying the moment, You, you know, enjoying whether they stay up in the Premier League or win a promotion battle, but it's a, quite another thing to come onto the pitch and go the opposition fans or go the opposition players or even attack, attack them. But what's alarming is, is really the sort of uselessness of the stewarding, really. I, I mean, they know it's going to happen and it just seems that they're just allowing them to come on. And, 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 I, and I think, you know, as I say, the scenes that we've seen recently at Crystal Palace and at Nottingham Forest are very, very worrying.
0: I mean, for me, right, these are just a few bad apples, so we mustn't tar the game, right, with with a few idiots, frankly, who have been ruining it for everyone else. Because I think you get far too many, and you know this better than I do, far too many on the likes of Twitter.com who sneer at football and want to tar every football fan with the same brush, don't they?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean I mean as I say, I mean I've seen lots of the majority of people, ninety-nine percent of those fans that run onto the pitch, they just want to celebrate their team. They it's been a long hard season, uh they've been successful in whether they've survived from relegation or got promoted and you know it's it's all great to be getting selfies and singing and dancing with your team i'm all for that but it's literally this this small element that's creeping more and more into it and what i don't want to do i don't don't, what i don't want to see is a mountain made out of a molehill i think they just need to be more preventive and just root out who these idiots are i mean they, they got footage of that guy didn't they who attacked Billy Sharp and he's already been in court pleaded guilty. These people have got to to come down hard on them, you know, and that means perhaps a life ban. Perhaps that's the only way to do it.
0: Justin, I haven't got very long left with you, unfortunately, but I wonder if I can Mm. whittle off a few questions and you respond to them as as quickly as you can. Man City clinched the title or is there an upset on the cards, do you reckon?
2: Do you know what? I was looking at these fixtures. Liverpool have got Wolves at home, City against Villa. I can't see either dropping any point, but... You know what football's like? If suddenly there's a goal in the Liverpool game and City are being held and getting frustrated, that's when it gets very exciting. And, you know, I'm a West Ham fan. I remember West Ham stopping Liverpool winning the title in the past. I've seen, I've stopped Man United winning the title in the past and when we've already been relegated. So anything is possible on that final
0: day. Who's going to be relegated to the championship?
2: Do you know something? I think it's going to be Leeds United. I don't know if you know the story. Two years ago, Leeds uh, released a video goading and gloating about their uh, promotion to the Premier League at Brentford's expense. Fast forward two years, where they're going, they're going to Brentford, where only a win will keep them in the Premier League, or guaranteed to keep them in the Premier League. Um, I think Burnley are just going to get over the line.
0: Fascinating stuff. And we will see in this massive, massive weekend... For sport in general. Justin Allen, there, sports writer at The Sun. As always, thank you very much for your time. A leading Cambridge professor said that white private school boys are now the most disadvantaged when applying to Oxbridge, Oxford, or Cambridge. Being white male and privileged is apparently increasingly being frowned upon. David Abolafi, a fellow of Gonville and, and College, said. He suggested that actually to combat this this disapproval of white male candidates, school names should be removed from the application by listing their private school. Students are actually penalising themselves for their parents' choice. Not a fair, I mean, an ultimately fair point, isn't it? And actually betraying the principles on which Cambridge has flourished, he argued. This, for me, has raised questions as to whether universities should offer places on merit or should they continue to pursue policies of positive discrimination? I do that in quotes, folks, for our listeners on radio, in order to reach so-called equality. Well, joining me now to discuss this is trainee teacher Ryan Bell Morley and Craig Little, a law and politics student. Craig, can I start with you? Should universities positively discriminate? And again, I say that there is no such thing if you ask me about positive discrimination, to achieve equality.
3: Well, Darren, I think we should be sending the message to future generations that it should be your hard work that is the thing that matters. I mean, it's what I was told throughout my time at school. Because at the end of the day, if you put the hard work into it, that should be the crucial point when it comes to universities choosing which students they want to attend. Now, you know, there's other ways in which universities can get around this issue of having more people from other walks of life to attend our universities whether that's through the introduction of foundation degrees which i think is an excellent way of allowing a wider breadth of students to attend a university but still through their merit not because of a simple tick box um and uh, crucially i think the partnership between local local schools and local universities is very crucial in trying to get people from more walks of life to attend these prestigious universities. And I have to say, Darren, in my local area with the University of Kent and my local school, it was incredibly crucial to me that we had that connection. Otherwise, I wouldn't have attended my university. Brilliant.
0: Ryan Bell Morley, if we have more people going to university, though, they're just going to end up as left-wing as you are, aren't they? <laughs>
4: Uh, I think you make a good point there. Obviously, uh, uni is a place where you experience a lot of different things, ideas, cultures. And that's part of the reason why I think reform is necessary. So positive discrimination obviously can go too far. But if we truly want to see difference in our universities, we need to introduce it. Like you said there, people work hard, but people work hard from all different walks of life. and It all comes down to the lottery as well. So the lottery of life, like you mentioned in the last segment. So people who were born in middle class families are lucky enough to be provided with more resources to give them an advantage in life. Really, positive discrimination is evening out the field. So it's giving everyone the same chance. On top of this, our universities should always give a great reflection of a society. And uh-huh. universities being primarily made up of the middle class or upper class is far from a fair representation. Well, Ryan, I think you've got a fantastic accent and
0: I'm going to guess, right, that you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. But do you not think ultimately it would be really patronising for someone to be able to suggest that you got there just because of the accident of birth, right? Because of the circumstances that you were born into and not down to genuine hard work and effort.
4: Now, what I'd just like to clarify there is the last thing I want to do is patronise someone because like we mentioned before, you can't help which walk of life you're born into. The point I was trying to make is that people who were born into an upper class family are instantly presented with a better chance at education. They have more encouragement around them and there's arguably a greater pressure in that sort of area of society to achieve more. Really, we need to be pushing people from the lower classes, of society, ethnic minorities, etc, to actually try university. Just because other members of your family haven't, doesn't mean that you shouldn't. And that's why positive discrimination is key. Craig, we're just
0: coming to the end there. Can I ask you for your, very briefly if you would, final points
3: on what you've just heard there? Well, uh, to to go back uh, on what the gentleman said, I mean, to be quite frank, uh, as I just said, but the crucial thing here, I think is a partnership between local universities and local schools, because that, at least in my area, is what unlocked people from disadvantaged backgrounds to actually go and attend university and it is working. We've seen throughout the years that more and more people are attending university from poorer backgrounds and that's something we should all be celebrating. And to me, that just shows how unnecessary this whole thing is turning out to be. Right, we're gonna have to leave it there folks, but thank you very much for your
0: contribution. A fascinating debate, I'm sure our viewers will agree. Now, folks, next up in the show, I'm joined by the director of the Margaret Thatcher Centre for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. Not only is her legacy, including, of course, free trade and lower taxation, under attack, but a new bronze statue of the Iron Lady in her hometown of Grantham has been physically attacked this week, with people actually selling eggs to pelt at the statue outside of it. So I'm joined now by Niall Gardner. Thank you very much for your company. Now, the Margaret Thatcher Centre, I'm assuming, given your name, at the Heritage Foundation, is opposed to this act of vandalism of Maggie Thatcher's statue.
5: Well, Darren, uh, many thanks for having me on the show today. And uh, and yes, without a doubt, this act of vandalism against Margaret Thatcher's statue in Grantham is an absolute disgrace. It shows how petty-minded, of course, the, uh, you know, the socialist left are attacking a statue of a truly great uh, leader who liberated Britain, of course, from the tyranny of of socialism. Uh, She won three general elections in a row. Uh, She restored British greatness on the world stage. And so to have, you know, these these petty-minded, you know, lefties hurling eggs and so on, uh, it's an absolute uh, abomination. But it, it does demonstrate, really, you know the narrow-mindedness, the intolerance uh, of the uh, of the left here, who cannot accept. You know the the magnificent achievements of of Margaret Thatcher and, and the British people. I think, oh, you know, Lady Thatcher an immense debt for everything that she achieved on behalf of the British nation, but also the free world owes Margaret Thatcher uh, an immense debt. And, and my former boss, I think, uh, you know, was an absolute titan uh, on the on the British and international stages. Uh, we should revere her memory. Uh, She was someone who lived her entire life for her country, for the British people uh, and for the sake of uh, the principles of freedom and liberty.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're just for radio listeners, we're just playing pictures of Mrs Thatcher's first election victory there. But now, why does her memory then, of course, as you say, three election victories, uh, one of the most definitely, I think, as far as the post-war is concerned, at least, the most influential prime ministers in living memory. Why does that memory, though, including this statue, provoke seemingly unparalleled anger on the left of British politics?
5: It's a good question. You know, so many decades after Margaret Thatcher was was prime minister, you still have this venom and hatred, you know, from from the left. Well, I suspect it's because the, you know, the left lost. The socialists lost. Uh, conservatism won. The principles of liberty freedom prevailed uh, over the, you know, the tyrannical ideas of of the left. So there's a lot of resentment uh, from the left. And also, of course, you know, Margaret Thatcher played a pivotal role as well, uh, actually, in the the development of, of Brexit. In fact, uh, her 2002 book Statecraft was the genesis of Brexit, where she called for the UK to renegotiate its relationship with the European Union. If it didn't get what it wanted, she said, Britain had to leave. That's exactly what happened. And so you have also, you know, the, the, the Brexit factor as well, uh, and the, the reality is that, you know, conservatives have prevailed over, you know, a very dark period in British history when Labour ran the country in the 1970s. Britain was the sick man of Europe. Margaret Thatcher restored Britain as a self-confident, a truly great nation uh, on the world stage. Uh, and she, you know, she defeated the, you know, the scourge of, you know, the far left who were destroying Britain. As, as we knew it, actually. Britain was a declining nation when Margaret Thatcher took over as Prime Minister and she restored uh, the great uh, in Britain uh, and she restored the self-confidence of a nation that, that today, you know, I, I think is, a, is an infinitely stronger country as a result of Margaret Thatcher's uh, leadership.
0: Right, now, so what would she have made? You mentioned the Euroscepticism there that ran through later years, certainly, of, of Margaret Thatcher's premiership. What do you think she would have made and I think it's safe to say that we're of the view that Mrs Thatcher was a staunch unionist as well, right? So look at what she did in Northern Ireland very, very robustly. What would she have made of this Irish Sea border that's being created by the Northern Ireland Protocol?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. This is a big issue right now on both sides uh, of the Atlantic. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher would have fully supported, I think, the efforts... Uh, taken right now, actually, by the British government uh, to amend the Northern Ireland Protocol, it isn't working. Uh, it's it's a deal that was actually a protocol that was forced on uh, the British people by the European Union as part of the deal to get out of the of the EU. Uh, this is a very bad deal for the United Kingdom. It's a terribly bad deal, I think, for the uh, for the wonderful people of Northern Ireland uh, who are in effect discriminated against as a result of the protocol. Uh, the, the protocol is hugely flawed. And the European Union is trying to defend the indefensible, uh, and I think the uh, you know the Boris Johnson government is one hundred percent right uh, to try and uh, you know address what is going on, to change uh, the protocol, to take unilateral action with regard to the protocol because the EU is not negotiating in good good faith. The EU is behaving with incredible arrogance here, uh, and you know Margaret Thatcher uh, would have uh, strongly stood up to the European Union uh, over this. Uh, and she would have told the EU it is no business dividing the United Kingdom um, and Northern Ireland basically is split off from, you know, from the rest of the UK in terms of uh, being forced to be part of the, you know, the EU single market It's discriminated against. This is unacceptable. It's also unacceptable, frankly, for Nancy Pelosi, the US Speaker of the House of Representatives, to be lecturing Britain on this issue. That's an absolute disgrace. She needs to mind her own business uh, and keep out of this.
0: Well, that that was going to be my next question, actually. So well, well done you for, for, for being able to get your crystal ball out and get there before I asked it. But the American administration, as you've just mentioned there, they've taken actually quite a hard line against any unilateral action by the British side. You could say actually criticising the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. And actually, I say to an American audience that may well be watching you today, Niall, I would say, look... It's like an American, a US state, right? One of the states of the United States of America being beholden, cut off from the rest of the US. And it's Canadian courts and Canadian legislators that make the decisions that happen to this particular US state. That would be seen as completely unjustifiable to an American audience. Why did the American administration, the Democratic Party, not seem to understand why we view that as objectionable?
5: Well, you've made uh, tremendous points there, Darren, because this is an issue really of, you know, British sovereignty and self-determination. You have a very left-wing US administration. The Biden presidency is is a left-wing, you know, government. Uh, It is uh, also, you know, surrounded by its allies in Congress, The Democrats, of course, who are anti-Brexit, and so this is feeding through here. And I think you know the lecturing, the hectoring coming from Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, but also from the Biden White House, is completely you know unacceptable. This is a matter for the British people to decide. It's not the business of the United States uh, to be interfering on this on this matter. And you know Nancy Pelosi is, I think, you know, astonishingly rude, arrogant. Uh, and appalling attacks on the British government here, and all the threats that she's making to derail a U.S.-U.K. trade deal, this is completely out of order. Uh, There is very strong opposition, of course, to this among U.S. conservatives. Many members of uh, of Congress, Republicans, are strongly opposed to the Democratic position. They want to see a U.S.-U.K. trade deal. They do not support in any way uh, the, the appalling language being sent from the Biden White House, or from Nancy Pelosi, uh, and we should also bear in mind, of course, there are, there are midterm elections November uh, in the United States. Uh, the polling shows uh, that there's likely to be a conservative revolution, uh, and you know Nancy Pelosi is highly unlikely to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives post, you know, post uh, January, uh, following the the midterm election. So it's a lot of you know hot air, frankly, coming from. Uh, from the American left. They're anti-Brexit. They don't like Brexit. They parrot the talking points of the European uh, Commission. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi really needs to, to mind her own business and stop telling the British what to do. Well, hey, I
0: tell you what, if Nancy Pelosi is out as Speaker of the House... All I can say is why does the United States of America with a population over, what, 300 million people keep going for people that are 80 years old? It's just absolutely bizarre to me. But anyway, Niall Gardner, director of the Margaret Thatcher Centre for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for your thoughts. First story this week, Jake Daniels, a Blackpool player, he came out as gay. So what? And many of you have written to me and said, so what? But he's the first, you see, he's the first player to come out in the UK in 30 years. And only the second out professional footballer in the world currently. The other is in Australia and only recently actually came out. So does the beautiful game have an issue with gay men? That's my culture all today and it's time to hear a range of views, I'm delighted to say. I'm joined by Stuart Wayton, Senior Lecturer, at Abertay University, and Peter Tatchell, LGBTQ activist and the director of the Peter Tatchell Foundation. Peter, thank you very much for your company. Can I start with you? I'm sure you'll agree with me that 30 years is an incredibly long time. And I think, Peter, we won't disagree, actually, that there is a cultural problem, isn't there, in football, where people feel that actually coming out could be a threat to pursuing a really top-set career.
6: Well, you're absolutely right. Um, There are approximately 5,000 professional footballers in the UK. And as of now, Jake Daniels is the only one who's open about his sexuality, despite the fact that statistically there probably are about 500 gay or bisexual players who are professional footballers. So it is really surprising, Uh, all the more surprising because recent surveys have shown that Three quarters of football fans wouldn't care less if a player on their team came out. All they care about is, will the player score goals? And I think we should be focusing on honesty, truth, and integrity in football, and not on people's sexuality. And I think it's great that Jake has given a, a lead, and I hope that others will follow, because there are lots and lots of others.
0: And then you've heard what Peter's had to say there. There's clearly a cultural problem with the sport. So why not put the rainbow out there? Why not advocate equality and diversity in our beautiful game?
7: Um, well, you know, I think you could promote all sorts of things. Um, uh, football. I mean, personally, I think uh, football's being swamped by... Uh, kind of awareness raising. Um, I don't think football is particularly the place to do it. Uh, And I think historically, there was an argument that you should keep sport and politics separate. Um, But increasingly, it seems that people in authority, and football authorities, uh, have completely given up on that and want to promote um, whatever the, the latest campaign that they're interested in doing it. And the problem I have with it is that it feels like an enforcement of values, that it's sort of taking the name. Uh, And I I take Peter's points, although I'm not sure to what extent football is coming out or not coming out reflects a problem of homophobia, which, again, I mean, there's a book on this, I don't know if Peter's figures are similar to the book that's been written about uh, homophobia in football, which makes the conclusion from their research that actually football fans... Are pretty much like you know what you'd expect is they don't really care, um, yeah. and I, I mean I'm, I I I the first ever left wing newspaper I ever sold was in the revolutionary hotbed of Kingston upon Thames, and it was in defence of gay rights and that was that was 30 years ago, and I think it's been one of the greatest changes in British culture and Western culture that we now basically accept that gay people are, should be free equal etc cetera, etc cetera, and everything else and, and I suspect if you asked football players uh, and fans they would say something similar so I think I think the question you're raising about why the footballers look them I out mean I played football and I played football at, um, and, and I can tell you that foot, being a, a, a bloke in a changing room in a football atmosphere. Is a blokey kind of atmosphere, and I suspect that's part of the reason that uh, gay men do not particularly want right. to come out. I think it's also that people might just want to have a private life, um, and uh, you know, I, and this, they think that some of the fans might take the Mick, and they just don't want to give okay. them that opportunity. I don't think it necessarily means that football is drenched in um, homophobia like society is.
0: So, Peter, on that point, then, on what Stuart has just said there, do you think that, ultimately, we have moved on as a society? Most people say, I don't care, so, you know, don't... Why do you feel the need to come out? A lot of people are saying we shouldn't wear the rainbow colours because, actually, we're accepting of all of this in society. Just leave it all alone and get on with your
6: lives. Well, first of all, this is not a political issue. It's a human rights issue. It's how we want to have a kinder, gentler, more inclusive society where everyone feels welcome. The problem is that historically gay and bisexual men have been deterred to either play football or go to football matches because it was in the past a very homophobic experience. Um, As I said, the number of fans who are anti-gay now is 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 probably only about a quarter of fans but that is still a sizable minority and we know that um, football clubs like brighton for example regularly get jibes um, homophobic (laughs) jibes from rival fans so it is a problem and players do fear that if they come out they'll be subjected to taunts which will put them off the game Um, They also fear rejection by teammates. But, again, the Professional Footballers Association has said loud and clear that they fully support players if they come out. And that's what we want. We want to have sport that's an equal playing field, where people are judged on merit, not on their their sexuality. And we know that lots of straight footballers regularly brag about their girlfriends and wives and going on holidays with them. Uh, Why shouldn't gay footballers be able to do the same?
0: Okay. So, Stuart, do you think ultimately this is actually a, a, an issue where the Twitter classes, for example, sneer at the game itself, right? They view football fans as being thick, ignorant, bigoted working classes who just wouldn't get this sort of thing, so actually you need to wear a rainbow in order to actually change their point of view. Is that what this is?
7: Yeah, I think there's an element of snobbery involved in it, not just on this issue, but the race issue is even more clear. Where um, you know, so I watch Sky, I watch a lot of football and so on, and you know, you get these flashing, almost like subliminal messages about re- be, be against racism flash across your screen. And the thing is, I, I agree with um, Peter's sentiment, but I think if if there was a different type of message being flashed across your screen. You would probably think this is this is a kind of form of Maoism, you know, where you're trying to change the values, you know, to educate yourself, and you constantly have this at football. And the thing is, it's not really education; it's a kind of dogma. It's a kind of okay. wagging finger, right, which is constantly done. And this the the, the footballer that you mentioned in um, in France. I mean, I think you have a situation there where a Muslim footballer doesn't want to wear anything to do with... Which, uh, in my view, Asian we
0: shouldn't rights. have to, right? I don't think anyone should ultimately be coerced to do anything that they don't want to. It's a that's fundamental... Right. And that's, 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 where, that's where we find a
7: problem. Yeah, we find a problem where basic basic freedoms like freedom of conscience of an individual
0: yeah. are Stuart, being
7: forced I'm... upon him. He is meant to, to adopt a belief that he doesn't believe in in, right. in what is his workplace, which, is to me, is quite authoritarian and worrying.
0: Peter, sadly, I've only got a few seconds left, but I just want to give you a chance to respond to that point.
6: Well, let's just say there was a white racist player who refused to uh, acknowledge and support black players. We wouldn't accept that. We would say that there's no place in football for racism. And I think we should have the same attitude towards homophobia, a zero tolerance. And I think wearing rainbow laces or lanyards, um, that is not a political issue. It's a human rights issue. And it's
7: the authoritarian. I've got, I've got, you're being authoritarian. You're trying to force your values on other people.
6: OK, folks, I'm
0: sorry. We're going to have to leave it there and agree to disagree. That was Stuart Wheaton, the author, academic and football writer, and Peter Tatchell, the LGBTQ activist. Thank you very much for your time today. Next up folks, linton on Ouse, a tiny North Yorkshire village with a population of under a 1,000. It's set to host a new asylum seeker processing facility that could hold 1,500 single men. It actually means that 70% of residents are going to be asylum seekers and the first men could arrive in just weeks. Locals are less than happy, I think it's safe to say, with the plan to build the centre in a former RAF station on the outskirts of the village. They spoke to GB News about their concerns.
8: Everyone is saying that it's the wrong place to put 1,500 asylum seekers. There's no facilities for them. We're not against the refugees. If it was 1,500 British white lads, it would still be the same. It's overpowering. It would mean for our village that... The asylum seekers outweigh the villagers by three to one, which is very intimidating for people living in the village, the community. It's upsetting. Yeah, it's just really about, like, safety for us women. I feel like there's no safety put in place. And um, and um, it's things like me and my friend going out for a run. Um, we will no longer be able to do that anymore. Um, yeah, it's, it's singly or in a group, I just don't feel
4: safe at all
0: quite the report there would you feel confident with one of these asylum seeker processing centers in your area this week kevin hollingrake the local mp has said that the center would devastate the community pretty strong stuff so joining me now is dr olga matias from linton on action group olga thank you very much for your company today do you actually agree with kevin hollingrake your mp there do you actually feel like you're getting good representation on this issue
8: Darren, I think Kevin's doing a superb job at trying to knock some sense, shall we say, into the Home Office. Uh, I'd like to just pick you up on one thing that you said when you introduced this uh, article on your programme. The RAF station is not on the outskirts of the village. It's actually slap bang in the middle of the village. There's one road, and as you get to about halfway down the road, you turn into the entrance of the RAF base. So it does Migrant centre is going to be, start. it's
0: at the very heart, isn't it, of the community it's then? It's at the very the heart, yes. Yeah. And that just... So yes, how Kevin's much, doing a good job. And how <laughs> successful is your campaign then ultimately? Have you ever seen the community so incensed about an issue before?
8: I just want to clarify with you, Darren, that the, the community is incensed with the Home Office. It's the Home Office behaviour that has gone counter to anything that we in this country should expect from our, our government. They've gone against every single regulation, guideline, or policy that they have set out, that they, as a government, have let us, the population, know that is a framework of behaviour. They are accountable to us. Their first duty is to look after and keep the population safe. They have um, rules about consultation. There has been zero consultation on this. The first that was uh, heard was on the 14th of April when it was announced. On the 21st of April, uh, there was a, a village meeting, and after that meeting is when Multi-agency meetings started to discuss the implications of what was going on. Tripling the population of anywhere is a very, very difficult matter. Uh, The water people, the fire, police, nobody knew. Now, one of the guidelines that the Home Office has uh, stated for open and transparent government is that um, consultation should be targeted and proportionate. Now, bless them, presumably, they were trying to look after us because at the very end of that consultation guideline, it does say, um, in an effort to reduce, let me just try and remember, in an effort to reduce the risk of consultation fatigue, um, we will make sure that we only consult on issues that are genuinely undecided. Now, to me, that means that they were always... There's no democratic
0: consent there, is there? No
8: democratic consent whatsoever. Exactly.
0: On that point, those who don't want, in my opinion, and I've said this, those who don't want channel migrant hubs being set up in their towns or villages are far too often dismissed as being some kind of bigot, right? But actually, if you ask me to fundamentally, to actually put one that many people into a community that is much smaller than the number of people that could eventually be arriving in the centre of the community would fundamentally alter it, right? And as you say, with no democratic consent. And ultimately, it's also got now to do with skin colour, in my opinion, and it's got everything to do with people who have, frankly, broken in to our country, being offered bed and board on the taxpayer. A lot of people have real issue with that. <laughs>
8: Possibly so, Darren. I know that's probably your, you, you know, one, one of the points of interest for you. But we, as an action group, what we are purely focusing on is, as you rightly said just earlier, the undemocratic behavior of the Home Office. In the village, as, as a couple of the clips that you showed when you were live in the village um, on Thursday, we are not against asylum seekers at all in any way, shape, or form. What we are against is the disproportionate behaviour of the Home Office. To put 1,500 people in a village of 700, plus there are going to be, Serco has announced that there are 300 employees being recruited. So that's 1,800 people versus 700. That's three to one nearly. Um, Imagine that in London. Imagine three to one. That would be uh, what 25 30 million refugees coming into london for the same yeah. proportion puts it in Is perspective that sensible?
0: yeah i mean the home office have actually said that the center would help end our reliance on expensive hotels which are costing the taxpayer 4.7 million pound a day and that it's actually engaging with local stakeholders about the use of the site
8: are they engaging with you As I've said, they are engaging now, but probably because they have to, probably because we as an action group have uh, managed to get ourselves on their radar. It's interesting, you mentioned the 4.7 million a day. At the last meeting on um, Thursday when the Home Office came, we asked them specifically, one of the people in the village hall said, can you tell us how much per asylum seeker per day is spent in order to arrive at that £4.7 million. And can you tell us how much the costings for this new asylum processing centre in Linton-on-Ouse will be per asylum seeker per day? Laughably, in my opinion, the Home Office answer was that information is confidential.
0: Well, I now, mean, you I, make that what... Yeah,
8: exactly. That's quite that, extraordinary. You, it is, isn't it? So you make of that what you will. We, yeah. the taxpayers, they're spending our money. They're telling us the information is confidential. Now, either they have completely uh, abandoned any attempt of accountability to the taxpayer and to transparent government, or they haven't actually done the sums and they have no idea whether it's going to be cheaper or more expensive. I'll leave that to you maybe to pursue with somebody else in another interview.
0: Well, indeed, indeed, indeed. I mean, ultimately, I think if the government doesn't get serious on this, Olga, they're going to have to answer to more than just a few people in the action group that you guys have managed to muster in linton on Ooze. But Dr Olga Matias from the linton on Ooze Action Group, thank you very much for your time.
8: You're very welcome, Darren. Thank you. Now, folks, it's time
0: for Grime Watch, a time to look at what you at home have been saying about the stories we've covered here on Real Britain. And we had a fair number, I think it's safe to say, of responses to a story that we ran yesterday that we didn't have time to read. Out, It was about the Cambridgeshire police who were criticised after sharing pictures of Superintendent James Sutherland wearing the brightly coloured rainbow helmet while patrolling Cambridge on Monday. We don't allow the armed forces folks to traipse around the world draped in the colours of the rainbow like an armed to the teeth clown. In my view, why should the police be any different? Plenty of you gave your thoughts on that very issue. Mary thinks I'm completely wrong. She said... Why on earth would a community policeman with a rainbow helmet, which presumably supports LGBTQ, showing support for equality, offend you? Well, Mary, it doesn't offend me, but I think I, that actually the police should get on with other more pressing priorities. If they're spending all this time painting helmets and painting cars, they're not focusing on bang, uh, putting prisoners... Uh, actually. Criminals into the prisons and actually solving the crimes that we want them to. That's my issue. John says the police are supposed to be a neutral apolitical organisation. Hear, hear, John. Unfortunately, this is an overtly political statement which indicates a particular alignment. And John's right. There are many contentious issues in the the modern-day LGBTQ plus movement, especially around the issue of the erasure of women from our national picture. Oliver said, oh, because a policeman wearing a rainbow hat is going to remove all respect for the police. Well, yes, I think he is. Oliver, what hardened criminal is going to look at a copper wearing what looks like Joseph's technicolour rainbow hat that he's got on and actually think, do you know, that's a man that I fear, That's a man that I've got all respect for. That's a man that I think is going to enforce law and order here in Britain. You look like a clown. Laura said, why is no one asking why they are wasting their time and budget on proving how inclusive they are? And, Laura, that goes to the heart of what we were discussing at the top of the show there at 2 o'clock, which I think is the capture of many public taxpayer-funded institutions to this wackery and walkery, and the police actually focusing on that, more than they do on law and order, and that's wrong. Libby had this to say, though. Police showing support and solidarity to LGBTQ plus community, the NHS employing equality and diversity managers. Why is it that these approaches designed to ensure inclusivity and avoid discrimination and inequality is being peddled by media as the problem? Because I don't think ultimately that it is doing that. I actually think that these moves to pursue so-called positive discrimination, in my view, there is no such thing now as positive discrimination. Any form of discrimination is wrong. That's my view. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment.
8: I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.